This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Advocates are sounding the alarm about huge increases in the amount hospitals are spending on agency nurses. This is a topic we've covered many times here on Fight Back, but now we have some hard numbers. So take UHN, for example. It's Ontario's largest teaching hospital and research facility, and it had already spent $6.7 million on agency nurses in the fiscal year ended this March, March 2022. And that is a huge jump compared to 2018 when it spent $1.03 million. And during the fiscal year that ended 2021, it only spent $776,000. Now, everyone agrees that this is just a stopgap measure, but it is one that is not sustainable. And some people even say it could possibly bankrupt the system. What do you think? And have you been uh, helped by agency nurses? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we have a number of stakeholders, starting with Dr. Michael Warner, who is the Medical Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. Dr. Warner, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, as the, I, I want to figure out how this works, first of all. As the Medical Director of Critical Care, uh, are you involved in figuring out how many bodies you're short and how many agency nurses you might have to hire? No, I'm not. The manager of the ICU is responsible for hiring agency nurses to supplement our full-time staff. And just to be clear, I mean, the, the nurses themselves are, are highly skilled. In some cases, they're nurses who used to work for us who are now working for agencies, so they have the same skills as hospital kind of hired ICU nurses. They just come through a different pathway via a private company. Okay. And uh, how often have you or have you noticed a big increase in the use of these agency nurses? We have agency nurses working every shift every day in our ICU, far more than we did in the past. We have, uh, I think, 15 to 20% full-time vacancies at our hospital. And, you know, just from a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense for a nurse to work for the hospital because the hourly wage they can get net after the private agency has taken their fee, is much higher than they would get based on the union wage, even if you can for the vacation pay benefits and pension that they forego by working for an agency. So the the market forces are driving nurses towards agency work, plus they have more flexibility in that they can book their shifts when they want. And the previous knock against agency work pre-COVID was that it was very difficult for nurses to cobble together an income because there weren't full-time hours available. But now, because we are so short, nurses can get full-time hours, even at one hospital, but for a higher hourly wage, you know, to work around Bill 124 and other constraints within their contract. Um, where do you get the numbers that that it's higher even when you account for vacation, sick days, and pension? Because uh, that's not the information that I've been seeing. Interesting. Okay, so if you look at, you know, I've seen the invoices, first of all, for what the hospitals are charged, and I also see the advertisements for what the nurses are paid. So 
if you take an advertisement that's up online right now, it says that a nurse will pay will make seventy to eighty seven dollars per hour. Right. That company charges our hospital one hundred and ten dollars per hour. A first year nurse, for example, makes thirty three dollars and ninety cents per hour. If they, if you add their pension and benefits, the hospital calculation is to add about fifteen to twenty percent on top of that, depending on their level of seniority, because vacation pay is a sliding scale. So, I mean, if anybody does the math, they can see that there's still a spread between what their take home and what they miss in in lieu of benefits and pension plus their union hourly wage. It's a significant gap. Mm-hmm. And if you take a nurse who's you know 25 years in practice, there's still a gap um, between what, what they get. What would a nurse's hour, a full-time nurse's hourly wage be? If you look at the ONA contract, they get an, an increase year one through eight, no increase year eight through 25. I'm on my phone, not on my computer, so I don't know the exact yeah. number, but it's probably around $50 per hour. Mm-hmm. And if you add 20% to that, there's still a spread. Um, in terms of, uh, we've also heard that the agencies have been raising their rates. Oh, 100%. I mean, I've seen the invoices. Uh, they've nearly doubled their rates in some cases. They've taken advantage of the fact that we're so short that they can charge what the market will bear, and hospitals are paying. I'm not sure why hospitals are paying. To be honest, I don't know why the hospitals kind of don't band together and say that, you know, we let's take the leverage back and, and not pay these rates because it doesn't seem fair. But regardless, hospitals have been put in a corner where they're paying these rates. I don't know where the money's coming from, but it's you know, just in the Toronto Star article that you discussed before, you know, it's tens of millions of dollars in the past year. And I don't know where that money isn't being spent instead, and what public services aren't being paid for because hospitals are potentially over the barrel by these agencies because they need nurses to staff the beds they have. You know, I was just about to ask the same thing. I don't understand why hospitals, Ontario Hospital Association, and I wish they would talk to us at some point, doesn't just say, this is what we're paying and we're not paying a penny more and see who blinks first. I mean, even uh, if you get a service like a chiropractor from a private insurance, they have a cap on what they're going to pay. And if you want somebody who charges more, you got to pay. Yeah, you know, I'm not in those meetings, and yeah. I'm not you know, part of the groups that negotiate rates with these companies, but I know that there is a group called Plexus that negotiates the rates on behalf of a number of hospitals with a number of these companies. So you may want to get them on the line to ask, you know, why is it that, you know, the rates went, in one case, from sixty-four fifty an hour to $105 per hour in a matter of months for the same company, for the exact same service, for the exact same nurse? That's Plexus. Plexus is the is the organization that negotiates con, negotiates um, some of these agency contracts on behalf of hospitals, along with other things that hospitals buy as groups. So th- they might be the people to ask because I'm not part of those negotiations. And I, but I still don't understand. You know, you know, hospitals should be stewards of taxpayer money for sure. And yeah. and if they're being put in a position where they're spending more than they should for the same service. I mean, the government should be involved, but uh, it just doesn't, something's not quite right. Something's not adding up to me. Uh, the patients definitely need the care, but I don't think that, that predatory pricing should be allowed. Well, I, I certainly agree about predatory pricing, and, and I also don't understand uh, hospitals are powerful, especially altogether. Um, so I don't understand that. But you have contact with these nurses, and as you said, it's probably you know best if, if you're dealing with a nurse who used to work with you full-time. Have they, do, you, do you ever talk to them about what they would need to come back full-time? You know, I think, you know, I'm an IC doctor and I don't ever want to speak on behalf of nurses. I think that you need to ask nurses what motivates them. But I work with, you know, 10 to 15 nurses every day, every shift. 
and of different seniorities with different, you know, this different uh, factors that uh, influence how they decide to work. And I'd say for young nurses, you know, especially because their contract only offers pay increases year one through year eight, there isn't much kind of inducement to hold on to year 25. Plus, if they can quit their full-time job on Monday and make twice as much on Tuesday in the exact same job, you know, I would do the exact same thing. So I think that, you know, Bill 124, and I'm not a politician. I just know that it's a fork in the eye of a lot of nurses. It devalues their contribution. This is what restricts their their increases to one percent in this you know seven to nine yep. percent inflationary environment. It it just doesn't make them feel good, and it doesn't seem to be fair. and And I think that this is allowing um, private companies to come in and fill the gap. Yeah. Uh, in in a lot of places, I mean, uh, according to that Star article, uh, it it uh, UHN is running a deficit to cover that. That's not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I don't run hospitals and I don't deal with the budget, but again, I think that if you looked at the math, and, and you know, this is a complex issue, as Minister Jones is now saying, um, you know, if you gave unionized nurses an appropriate pay increase. Plus the you know the pension benefits and the security of a full time job that might be enough to pull some back from agency which could actually cost you less overall you know I, I think someone needs to do the math on that because the way things are going and then I just tweeted this today I can see a point where the agencies own a hundred percent of the workforce and have a hundred percent of the leverage and where nurses don't work for hospitals anymore and then there's no limit on what the prices can be unless the government steps in and, and I, I don't think that's where we want to be. Uh, I would agree. Uh, anything in terms of uh, what you see going forward? Has there been a uh, kind of a steady number of agency nurses you work with, or is does it keep is it keeping to grow? Well, I mean, we have a finite number of beds, so it's uh, it's it's you know every shift, every day, multiple nurses, and they're excellent nurses. And our full time vacancies have not decreased. So the the fact that we have agency nurses fully in the fold and fully involved has not ameliorated the staffing crisis. I would argue that it's, you know, the average cost per shift, when you look at all the nurses that we have for the ICU manager at my place, has increased uh, because of these agency nurses, even if you, when you account for the overtime you'd have to pay, you know, our full-time nurses to work extra if we couldn't fill the, the gaps with the agency nurses. So, Again, it's math. It's pretty straightforward, but it's also paying people appropriately and and having a long-term view because nursing needs to be a sustainable career for people like me in their forties who are going to need a nurse, you know, for the, you know, twenty, thirty years from now. And the people who are I'll, I'll need business, one sooner. <laughs> well, everybody will need a nurse. That's the thing. And, and people talk about beds. You know, a bed is just furniture. If there's no nurse, there's no patient there. And everyone's important: physiotherapists, respiratory therapists, the custodians. Everyone's important. But fundamentally, if there's no nurse at the bedside, you can have all the doctors in the world, but no one's taking care of that patient. So that patient can't be there. And and that needs to be recognized and acknowledged. And and I think that that people need to be valued. And nursing is a noble profession, but you have to pay people and treat people appropriately and also understand what work-life balance constraints exist within their current contract that are actually, you know, maybe causing nurses to seek agency work for things other than pay. Yeah, I I would imagine if they can control their own shifts and if they can say no, uh, that that would be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, and the Minister of Health first has to acknowledge that there's a healthcare crisis and that the situation we're in is actually unprecedented, which uh, she hasn't yet. So, uh, again, if you, if I was on the ground as a nurse, I'd, I'd be pretty uh, pretty disappointed because, 
you know, the experience that people are having, you know, on the ground does not seem to be recognized by the people who are making decisions. So how can they have any hope that something's going to change? So I think in a crisis, you have to acknowledge that there is a crisis. It doesn't mean it's the government's fault in totality, but they are responsible for setting in place the steps to fix it. And fixing it could take, you know, generations. It could take a generation to fix our healthcare system, but we need short-term fixes now as emergency departments must stay open at all times and, and patients uh, need care uh, from a qualified nurse, you know, all the time as well. Okay. Dr. Michael Warner, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take Bye-bye. Okay, now we will bring in Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, Catherine Hoy, President of the Ontario Nurses Association, and Dr. Kashif Prasada, a Toronto-based emergency physician. Thank you all for being with us. Hello. Hello. Hi, Thank you. So I guess you were listening to Dr. Warner. Let's begin with Catherine Hoy. Uh, do you agree with everything he said, or uh, do you have comments on it? Actually, he said it, he said it, he hit the nail on the head. I thought, what else could I say? He, he um, addressed all the issues, and uh, it is going to bankrupt the system. When we have Sunnybrook at $8 million and UHN at $7 million, and they still have to go to March 31st for their year end, and that's where they are right now, coming into September. We're in mm. trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, they say they're running deficits. I don't even know uh, what, yeah. wh- whether they're, I guess they're allowed to run deficits because they are. Um, no, no, they're really not. Uh, they're not supposed to be running deficits at all. And typically hospitals are very much on their budget and moving around programming that to meet their fiscal needs. So I have said before, I think it's going to be like General Motors. March 31st is going to come, and they're going to come to the government and say, we need a bailout because we're in trouble. And then Bill 124, how much did that actually save you? Because you tried to save on the backs of nurses and healthcare professionals, but now you've paid out through agencies. So you're actually in a further deficit. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's bring in Dr. Kashif Prasada. Um, What's your experience with the use of... Oh, he, he's not here yet. Uh, Natalie Mara, um, so do you agree with the math that we heard uh, from Michael Warner uh, that uh, even after you include vacation and sick days and pension, that it is still more lucrative to work for an agency? Yeah, I think the money is one thing. And obviously, we should all be concerned because, you know, the money that we spend on healthcare is so desperately needed um, to actually provide patient care. But I wanted to add that it's not just emergency departments, which is, a, you know, it is an unprecedented crisis. You know, I've done this for 27 years now, and we have never seen the like of what we're seeing now. But in addition, it's long-term care homes where, you know, I was hearing from the leadership of long-term care homes that at least one not-for-profit long-term care home has lost so many staff to agencies and they can't afford to pay what is price gouging in the middle of a, you know, a global healthcare emergency um, that they are uh, possibly going to go under. I mean, this is, this is across the healthcare system. Uh, the staffing shortage is a crisis. We need government leadership um, 
to to address this crisis. It cannot be done by the providers alone. And where hospitals could obviously band together, refuse to pay predatory pricing, um, you know, we still need to get staff boots on the ground. We need staff to provide the care that Ontarians need. And there is no plan, no plan from the Ontario government uh, to do this. You know, for us, uh, you know, one, the private for-profit staffing agencies are engaging in practices that really are uh, hideous given the situation. And two, the government has not stepped up to address the crisis in the way that it needs to be addressed, leaving the providers, the hospitals, the long-term care homes, home care, on their own to uh, have to pay just outrageous prices for staff. And I don't think it's just money. I mean, the workload, uh, and Catherine, I'm sure, can describe this in in really um, visceral terms, but the workload for staff is crushing. And so if you can choose not to work weekends, not to work overnights, make double the amount that you work, uh, that you would make working for your hospital, then, you know, obviously more and more people will quit. And so the, the impact of the agencies on the staff force is corrosive. It's just getting worse and worse. Catherine? They need to be banned. They need to be stopped. Catherine, do you have a sense of uh, why the hospitals wouldn't band together and say, there's a cap on what you can charge us? I have no idea why they would not do it. I have no idea why they are not pressuring the government to repeal Bill 124 and pay nurses fairly, and then they would have their staff. And the other thing about agency nurses is they're just in time nursing. You know, you'll you'll call and, and book nurses. There's no guarantee that the agency is going to have enough to fulfill the, the need that you have, and then units are running further short. But when you have your own staff, you've got them on a posted schedule, and they will be in to work. Well, yeah, as Natalie pointed out, it's not only money. It is uh, having control of your schedule. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're working full time, and I would imagine even if nurses get the kind of pay that will satisfy them, they're still going to have to work weekends and shifts and all of that. It is. It's, it's a huge piece of it. Um, absolutely. And in the last few years, we haven't, we've seen nurses that haven't had a vacation at all. And it's, and it isn't always about money because we'll have nurses that will go work for agency and it's not about the money. They're working half the hours. Right. And they're making the same amount of money and then they can work it around their daycare and things like that. That, those are items that Ona has been speaking to the employers about for years, having work-life balance working with your staff to meet their needs because when you're a good employer, you're going to, employees are happy, they show up to work and they'll be there when you need them. But they're really hard-lined on not letting you switch shifts, not letting someone else work for you. And that is really detrimental for for work-life balance. There's easy things employers can do that will not cost them money for staff satisfaction. Uh, I would imagine that might make managing pretty difficult if, if employees can switch around on their own and stuff like that, no? I mean, no, what reason? No, no. For instance, my hospital had a policy just for that, 
that um, I could, you and I could switch shifts. We just fill out the paperwork and then it went and that was done. Or you would work for me. I could take some vacation. I would work for you. You would take some vacation because if the employer couldn't figure it out, we could figure it out together. But what's happened now at many places is they're not even letting you do that because they're short every single day. I call it holding you hostage. You're on the schedule. I'm holding you hostage. You're coming to work. Now I know the other person is willing to work that day, so I'm going to call them in. And in some places, order them in. So uh, now I've got two people working. So again, no staff satisfaction. And and so let me get something when you say order them in. Can can a nurse, a full-time nurse, say, no, I can't come in? Uh, well, they make it very difficult for them because some employers threaten them with a college of nurses and say they're going to report them for abandoning patients. So a lot of them don't want to take that route and take that risk that their employer is going to do it to them. And then they have to go through investigations and hearings with the college. Okay. All right. So it, it is more than the money. Um, uh, Natalie, uh, you know, how would you uh, rate the importance of, of those things, more work-life balance versus the money? I think, that, I think it's critically important. Um, you know, and it's also workload. Like, staffing shortages beget staffing shortages. The more short you are, the more the workload becomes impossible. And burnout is is a very real thing. It's it's almost like it's like psychological injury to the staff. They have been through now two and a half years of pandemic. The shortages were emerging starting, according to the Stats Canada data in 2015. They were getting worse leading into the pandemic. The pandemic has hastened um, the, the leaving of nurses that could retire out. Um, and so across healthcare PSWs in long-term care, nurses in long-term care, uh, nurses and health professionals in hospitals. And as you have fewer, then people are under enormous pressure to do more and more and more overtime. You know, I've been talking with um, respiratory therapists. They're the ones who run the ventilators for all the COVID patients. We're incredibly short of them as well. And every time they're off, they're being called in to work. And it's not sustainable for them. So while we can say, yes, the hospital should band together and they should set a price and so on, they're still paying profits to a third-party agency to uh, bring in nurses who choose their own shifts and so on. What we need is a team of the healthcare staff. We need permanent full-time staff. People need to be able to make a living in one job uh, and they need to have reasonable workloads. I think all of those things, work-life balance, reasonable workloads, safety, health and safety at work, decent pay. And of course, Bill 124 is just, it's a finger in the eye to staff who have risked their lives and their families' lives now for all of us. Uh, and have really held things together in circumstances that none of us have ever seen before. Um, uh, it's almost unbelievable that the government hasn't pulled that yet. But what we really need uh, I agree. is a staffing um, plan. Catherine, we need leadership yeah. and a staffing plan from the province. Sorry. Yeah, Catherine, so how do you view, I mean, the, the province keeps announcing 
kind of piecemeal measures. You know, they're, they're going to help certain nurses with their tuition. If they agree to stay in certain places, they're facilitating hiring a, a number of whatever. Um, so, and they cite those things. So, you know, what would you say about their efforts so far? Is it just not enough or not comprehensive or what? I'd say that you have to look at the details. So the tuition for underserved areas, let's be honest, the whole province is underserved. So it's not that. It's mostly up in the north. So those numbers are very, very small that they're actually funding tuition to. Um, the, and signing bonuses, the exact same thing. If you look at the criteria to get it, it's um, it, there's a lot of criteria. So it sounds like an excellent package, but in reality, it's very few dollars going out. The same with the claims that they've hired, 10500 The next thing you know, it's 14500 If they've truly done that, then we would not be in a staffing crisis. But what they are doing is they're supporting a less expensive service at the bedside to uh, take care of patients. How so? With practical nurses or what? No, not with that. I'll use the Niagara system, for example. They're using OR assistance to replace the scrub nurse. And uh, so it's a 10-week, believe it, a 10-week program and two weeks clinical. And your qualifications to take the courses, you know how to sterilize equipment. But now you're going to be working in the OR alongside the surgeon, uh, handing them the instruments. Now, that was a scrub nurse's job, which traditionally was an RPM, but it's far less money. No science background, no regulated staff, and they said at first it was just going to be like porter servicing, but when you click into the job description, the true facts were there. So you're looking at a huge wage differential to put an unexperienced, unregulated provider at a bad side. And the other piece of that is now in the OR, you would have a RPN and an RN. Now, if you've taken the scrub nurse away, you only have an RN there. That is dangerous, very dangerous. And there is room in the health system for every single person, RNs, RPNs, and PSWs. But the key is the appropriate person with the appropriate patient population. And so now they're trying to move um, RPNs into ICUs and PSWs into floors and telling RNs that PSWs will now do your vital signs. RNs will not be giving medication on vital signs that they have not taken themselves. So that is a waste of resources and money. Room for everybody, but instead of putting these Band-Aids on everything, just pay people what they're worth. It it was okay to bring police up, a male-dominated profession that made less than a female profession. They brought police to equity with nurses, and they have now surpassed us. Okay, well, I guess the uh, I guess the question is, will 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 money solve these problems? Uh, it seems to me it's a, it might be a start, but but not a full exactly solution. Natalie Mira and Catherine Hoy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, thank so you, much. Libby. Bye bye. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Bye bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back. 
there is some research which shows that SUVs and pickup trucks are responsible for more fatalities and more grievous injuries than other types of vehicles. We will talk about that when we come back. And let me give you the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ontario safety advocates say they have research that suggests large SUVs and pickup trucks cause more pedestrian and cycling deaths than other vehicles, and they're calling on the province's chief coroner to investigate the problem. A study in the Journal of Safety Research found that even though SUVs and pickup trucks made up 26.1% of collisions with pedestrians, they caused 44% of the fatalities. And the study also found that these larger vehicles are likely to make impact with vulnerable road users in the chest and head areas, which is especially bad. Uh, the numbers, what do you think of that? Uh, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Albert Cole, cycling and pedestrian advocate and founder of the Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition, and Brian Patterson, president and CEO of the Ontario Safety League. Hello. Hi, guys. Hi, good afternoon. Yeah, good, good afternoon, Mayor. Libby. Uh, Libby. So uh, it makes sense to me that a bigger vehicle is going to cause more damage. Uh, is, is there anything surprising here, Brian? I think uh, I had this conversation with Dr. Moore, the, the chief medical officer, because the coroner's office, comes under their uh, uh, their uh, end, uh, and they have in the past done um, uh, re- a technical review and then a more detailed technical review. So they get the sort of the, the generic numbers from the police, and then they pull the collision records where that's happening. I think uh, my my concern is there's less and less involvement with uh, the police at the scene, less and less data being collected. So we're not, we, we may not get a really good picture in the, uh, for what we want, but we, we do know things like kids, for example, do not uh, see a larger vehicle as a vehicle or a risk. They sometimes think of it like an animal. That they're walking towards, they're not. They're not. They just don't. Uh, their brain hasn't gotten to the stage they can see that. Uh, I'm and not I sure think- that uh, a, a lot of these uh, fatalities and uh, collisions are are with children. Albert, what's your view of it? Well, well, the research from the U.S., which we believe is very compelling, uh, and as you say, I mean. In some ways, it's not a surprise, but now we've got the research that's that's been done by uh, academics and the International Institute of Highway Safety uh, uh, telling us what we suspected. I mean, these bigger vehicles are um, more dangerous, and when they hit someone, they're more likely, and that's clear in the evidence, they're more likely to kill someone. So so we mentioned children. Uh, children hit by 
SUVs, and this is a, you know, a, a fact out of one of the studies that astounded me, are eight times more likely to die when hit by a large SUV. Uh, so, so the, and the evidence on all of this is that, uh, number one, these vehicles sit higher, and so the driver has more uh, blind spots. The, the front end is much higher, the more blind spots. That's something we see with heavy trucks as well, but we're building these, these pickups uh, with a similar kind of design uh, problems. They also have a blunt front end. So instead of like a conventional car that might take a, a pedestrian out at the feet or at the legs, these vehicles are, are running into people full on and uh, damaging vital organs and therefore more likely uh, to kill someone. And then the third point, sort of the, the most obvious ones, these vehicles weigh, you know, three tons and, and higher. So they are, um, um, you know, not surprisingly more deadly when they hit um, uh, pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, is it me and is this an unfair comment? But it seems to me that the people who drive those bigger vehicles are, they drive more aggressively. Am I, am I wrong, Albert? Well, it'll be interesting if that is revealed in the research. But, you know, the way we look at it is that we're not saying, look, this is only of a concern to pedestrians and cyclists. I mean, what we've seen in the U.S. is what's been described as an arms race. I would describe it as a race to the bottom where everyone, you know, feels more confident when they have a big pickup or a big SUV and other people then feel so threatened that they think, I should get one of these as well. So you might be better off as a driver of a big vehicle relative to a small vehicle, but someone is still dying. And ultimately, the drivers will want to know um, this evidence as well, because they, they, you know, they might wake up and they've killed someone. They, then they read the evidence to say, well, I, you know, this might not have been a deadly crash had I been driving a smaller vehicle. Or the driver might say, well, I have loved ones, my neighbors, my friends, my, my parents, my kids, they're pedestrians. And I'm a pedestrian too when I, when I walk to the parking lot to pick up my, my vehicle. So, so this is really a, a community uh, issue and a community interest. And we don't want to go the route of the U.S. where we're seeing 50% increase in pedestrian deaths. We haven't seen yet that yet in Ontario. We want to avoid it. That's why we think it's a timely uh, point for the coroner to intervene. And Brian, do you agree the coroner should intervene? I, I think, uh, as I say, in talking to Dr. Moore, the coroner uh, has two, two options. They can look at one incident or two incidents that are very similar, or they can do sort of, I'd, I'd call it like an academic analysis of data, reports from other jurisdictions reports from Ontario, uh, reports from four or five uh, uh, police services, calling in expert witnesses from the various uh, collision reconstruction uh, groups. Because a lot of what, what we're seeing is uh, exactly what, uh, what uh, they, they, they found in the U.S. If you, if you fall under the front of a Honda Civic, you get hit and knocked to the roadway, there's... there's uh, um, uh, you know, for some people, they, 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 there may not be uh, enough clearance and they'll be pushed. If you fall underneath a pickup truck with 17-inch uh, extra-wide wheels on a booster kit, uh, there's no crumple zone on the front of that uh, uh, truck that you see often with the, with the private motor vehicles. Uh, but I, uh, and I think you're then crushed under the weight of sometimes two, two and a half times the weight uh, of the vehicle that uh, um, 
uh, an, al- an alternative vehicle. And, you know, I, uh, I often in dealing uh, with um, uh, more mature drivers, they often think if I have a bigger car, a bigger truck, a bigger SUV, I'm going to survive the crash. And we're working with them to avoid having a crash. But the, uh, I, I, had, uh, I had a neighbor was continually buying the biggest Cadillac that he could uh, have because he wanted as much steel around him in the event of a crash. And I thought, Tony, you're not, you're, you got this backwards. Uh, um, Albert, I mean, I remember for a while people, people were buying smaller cars, trying to be fuel efficient and all of that. And suddenly uh, it's like an epidemic of, of pickup trucks. <laughs> people want bigger and bigger cars. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what we're really concerned about. And that's why we think this is a, an excellent point for the coroner to intervene, to not go down the road of the U.S. where we've got, you know, even a bigger proliferation of these big vehicles. And we've got um, a, a dramatic increase, a really troubling increase of uh, pedestrian uh, deaths. This is exactly the time, as you know, we've all spoken about in the past, that we want people to go out and walk and cycle and to be active. But but the message when you're passed by a big vehicle like this is that this is no place for you. You should be somewhere else because, you know, we know these vehicles are mounting the sidewalks and killing people or squeezing out um, people on bikes. So this is a great time. And, and Brian mentioned the coroner has got, you know, he's got access to expert bodies and, um, and and therefore has the resources to look at the research, make findings, and then make recommendations that will keep all of us uh, in um, in Ontario and beyond uh, safe. Do you think that there's a role in government in making buying these vehicles uh, less attractive? Oh, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I, I think we're in this predicament because uh, uh, Transport Canada uh, wasn't doing its job. I mean, th- this research or this, you know, th- these sort of studies should have been done when we introduced all of these vehicles uh, into the province. So so there's definitely failing there because all of us ask ourselves as road safety advocates, I mean, when did we agree to have these monster vehicles on our roads? I mean, I don't remember any such a debate, and yet we're seeing um, the vehicle composition on our roads increasingly uh, with the SUV, large SUVs and pickups. And once we get beyond the city, the numbers are, are even higher um, with um, in terms of the numbers of pickups. Okay. Albert Cole, thank you so much for that. Bye-bye. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, well, the defeated former leader of the Ontario Liberals is running to be mayor of Vaughan. We'll talk about that when we come back. Let me give the numbers if you have a comment on it. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, just over two months since suffering a massive defeat in the provincial election, former Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has announced he is running for mayor of Vaughan. He is the latest defeated provincial politician to make the leap. Former NDP leader Andrea Horvath is running for mayor of Hamilton. And John Tory, don't forget, moved to municipal politics after getting trounced provincially. 
So Stephen Del Duca joins me now. Hi, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Libby. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, so first of all, uh, let's uh, hark back to the provincial election. Were you uh, surprised by that result? And w- what conclusions did you draw? Well, look, the June 2nd election was a, a very tough moment for me personally and professionally, my family as well. It was a very humbling experience. You know, I think we uh, did the very best that we could as a party, putting forward a ton of really great ideas and a great field, our team of candidates, I should say. Uh, the past couple of months, I've taken a lot of time to very carefully and I think um, I'll say methodically think about what I want to do next with my life and, you know, what's important to me and important to my family. And again, uh, very humbly, I've decided to step into this race for Mayor of Vaughan. And I'm excited about the race. My family is excited about the race. And fundamentally for me, Libby, it comes down to a very, very strong passion for serving the public and believing that I have some skills that can actually help improve the quality of life here in Vaughan, a community where I've lived for more than 30 years and a community that I love. Uh, obviously, you're not the only former provincial politician that is making that particular move. Do you think that uh, experience at Queen's Park is, is uh, particularly good for going into the new role? I think it can be. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that this is the route that uh, individuals take to get to municipal office. And, and I, you know, I want to level with you here. I, this was not an easy decision for me. I, I didn't wake up on June 5th or June 10th and decide that's it. I'm in. I'm going to run for something else. And it's not, um, I guess, by accident that it's taken me a couple of more than a couple of months to come to this point where I made the decision, the final decision just a few days ago with the support of my family to do this. So I did go back and forth on it because it is a lot to ask of the ones that I love, my wife and my, my daughters, after going through what we went through in June. But there is just a very strong belief I have, in particular because I think the number one issue in Vaughan is traffic and what's happening with our transportation network. Given that I did have the chance to serve as transportation minister for almost four years, I do think I have some experience and some skills that can help. And so that's that's why I've decided to run. And, and I'm going to try to earn it every single step of the way. I'm not taking anything for granted. And again, with a lot of humility, I'm going to try to serve my community. Uh, I was talking to our recovering politicians panel the other day and one of your former, (laughs) that's what we call it. uh, You're the one who is refusing to recover for the moment. Um, uh, One of your former cabinet colleagues, Charles Souza, said, you know, he also pointed out that it can be difficult to figure out where to land. Your experience is mostly in politics. Before that, you worked for a union. So uh, was that a factor? No, look, I mean, I'm a graduate of Osgood Hall Law School. I did spend some time working for the Carpenters Union. I served in two senior cabinet positions. You know, I, there were people who I've spoken with over the course of the summer who were encouraging me to consider a couple of different options that I had. I, I'm also looking at restarting uh, the teaching that I've been doing at York University over the past couple of years or the past four years prior to this past year. So there were other opportunities, and there are still are other things that I can do uh, should I become the mayor of Vaughan to continue to serve and to continue to do things that matter to me and are meaningful for me. Fundamentally, again, I, I really do believe that I'm not done yet with respect to trying to serve the public. Ultimately, the voters here in Vaughan will make a decision on October 24th, and they'll decide whether or not they're prepared to give me a chance. And if they're not, I can accept those terms. I believe in democracy, and 
I'll move on to other challenges. And if they do give me this chance, if I do earn their trust, then I'm going to work day and night to make their life better. You know, you're talking about traffic. So what about traffic? What are your ideas? Um, and uh, do you have a view on Highway 413? Yeah, well, I think most of the province knows my view on Highway 413. And my personal opinion hasn't changed at all. I do think that there are many different things that a mayor and a council have direct responsibility for that you can start the work on in the short term. So I'm, I'm literally on Rutherford Road in Vaughan right now in Woodbridge. And this is a road not unlike a lot of the east-west links that we have, existing links that we have, where the traffic is, is brutal. And it's, it's been brutal for a long time because our growth has been so explosive. And so there are segments of these major east-west routes that, that have, I'll call them missing links. I think of Kirby Road. I think of Teston Road. Um, there are places where uh, roads like Langstaff have missing links and Highway 7 goes from six lanes down to four lanes. You know, I think a mayor and a council need to look at, regionally and locally, need to look at how can we um, connect those missing links so that we take the pressure off places like Rutherford Road and Major Mackenzie Drive, as one example. But public transit is also really something, you know, I'm passionate about. I want the Young North Subway extension built. Uh, up uh, up into Richmond Hill, which will serve Vaughan residents living in Thornhill. I just want to make sure it's a route that supports what Vaughan residents are looking for. And I want go trains, go train service running through Woodbridge and Kleinberg, Nashville, uh, which the government currently has in their long-term transportation plan, the provincial government. So to me, it's a, it's a blend of a comprehensive transportation plan or network that a mayor and a council have a lot of direct control over, and that's what I'm going to sink my teeth into should I win come October 24th. You know, another one of our panel uh, kind of had a different take and a different objection uh, to someone like you running, and uh, that was Lisa Raitt, and she said that uh, municipal politics are supposed to be nonpartisan, and even though you can sort of switch and say you're nonpartisan, you are who you are, and that by having uh, you and, and Ms. Horvath and uh, whoever else in municipal jobs, that, that it injects uh, an unnecessary level of partisanship. What, what do you make of that? Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of Lisa Raitz. We've known each other for a long time. I mean, I'm a big fan personally. We obviously <laughs> yeah. diverge politically. Um, but look, I'm running to be mayor in a city that for the last 12 years, our mayor has been Maurizio Bebalacqua. And Maurizio is a dear friend of mine and, frankly, a bit of a mentor to me. And for 22 years before he became our mayor, Maurizio was the federal liberal MP in Ottawa on, on behalf of this community. And in your introduction of me today, you talked about John Tory and, uh, you know, yes, Andrea Horvath. But there's a long list of conservative NDP liberals, um, Bonnie Crombie, Patrick Brown, uh, the list goes, Art Eggleton went from being mayor of Toronto to being a federal liberal cabinet minister. So, I, you know, I, I, I like Lisa a lot. We're going to have to agree to disagree about whether or not people who carry a particular party card should be running for municipal office. I think the far more important thing, Libby, is that when you seek office at the local level, you put the partisanship to the side and you actually focus working with everybody in a very collaborative way to deliver outcomes. In my case, it happens to be traffic that I want to tackle. Um, but I have conservatives supporting me, obviously liberals supporting me. And there are people who've never held a political party's membership before who are supporting me too. And I think that's the beauty of local politics. 
what about this new uh, strong mayor system, which apparently is going to be uh, spread beyond Toronto and Ottawa? Does that make the job better? Well, I don't know for sure if it makes the job better because I look, the way that I look at it is I understand there's a very strong desire on the part of just everyday people to see government be efficient and be effective. And I share that goal. I mean, I like to see that as well. I'll speak for myself. I'm only running for office and I only ever have run for office because I want to deliver, in my case, the positive outcomes that I'm really excited about, fighting traffic, etc. But, you know, I think you have to be really careful, particularly at the local or municipal level, to never let a new mechanism get in the way or trample on the the wishes of a city council or a town council, but most importantly, the views of the residents. I mean, if there's any level of government where those views need to be not just listened to, but in a way um, almost accentuated or emphasized, to me it's local politics. So here's what I would say. If, if I become mayor and the provincial government decides to extend the so-called strong mayor powers to the city of Vaughan, you know, I'm not going to let that get in the way of me and our council listening to the people of Vaughan about what they want to see take place in their neighborhoods, because to me, that would just be kind of the opposite of what local politics is supposed to be all about. It's an idea that has merit, but it has to be constructed or built or delivered in the right way. Uh what about uh, opposition? I mean, one of the features of this upcoming municipal election is that uh, it doesn't look like an awful lot of people want these jobs. Uh, how many people so far are, are your uh, opponents? I think, if I'm not mistaken, the last time I saw the list, it was six or seven of us who are running for mayor. I think you're right in the city of Vaughan and in other municipalities that I've seen I think there is a, what seems to be, with a couple of days left to go, a lower level of people or a a smaller number of people who are signing up. I think that's a bit of an extension of what we saw in June, where voter turnout across the province provincially plummeted down to just over 40%. I think coming out of COVID, um, people are just very disengaged from politics, and that's not a good thing. So I am really hopeful that through a vigorous mayor's campaign in Vaughan, we can bring up the numbers of participation. And between now and Friday afternoon at 2, hopefully lots of other women and men step forward to run for local office right across Ontario, including in the city of Vaughan. And uh, is Maurizio running again? No, he announced in June that he was retiring after 34 years of incredible service and a well-deserved opportunity to, I think, catch his breath. So he is, he is not running again. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity and uh, great to hear your voice and hope you're keeping well. Okay, thank you so much, Stephen Del Duca, candidate for the mayor of Vaughan. Thanks for your time. Okay, uh, we are heading towards the end of the show and let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to have tomorrow. And in addition to our Tune Into the Town panel, where we'll probably talk a little bit more about these upcoming municipal races. Well, uh, we are going to have the new food editor of Blog TO, uh, and she is going to be returning from the CNE with all their wacky food offerings. She will have tried, you know, the mustard and ketchup ice cream, among other things. So uh, she'll have the reviews on that for you. And I'm certainly looking forward to hearing about that, because I'm not sure I wanted to be 
eating all that stuff. But anyway, uh, we're going to have a really fun show tomorrow. Tune into us then. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.